Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. If we don't want to be in the friend zone, we want to be doing something different with our clients, then you know you got to cross that bridge, right? But it's hard to compartmentalize because your team's going to see it. Your clients are going to see it. Those clients that you're currently working with in a legacy fashion, they're going to refer more people like them to you, right? Like versus getting more and more people that are, are who are ideal clients for you. So I definitely yeah. recommend not getting stuck in the... Uh, I love that. The the friend zone, if there's a big gap here, right, then you need to go through a branding process to change the perception of what people have about you. And, and you need to do things, right? You need to communicate differently. Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. So I hope you and yours are enjoying a very lovely and relaxing holiday season. And since a lot of us are going to be out, I thought it would be a good idea to rehash an old episode, but one that is definitely worth reviewing. This is from at the beginning of last year and is from Brent Weaver, and it's on the topic of getting rich in the deep end. If you don't know Brent, he's on a mission to help 10,000 digital agency owners achieve freedom in business and life by helping them own their market. He's the CEO of YouGurus, which is a business training and education company dedicated to this mission. He also hosts one of the leading podcasts in this space that I was very fortunate to join on, which is called The Digital Agency Show. So if you are in the middle of or about to enter your 2023 planning, or maybe you've already done it, I think this is a great perspective to get in terms of how to think about business models, how to sort of broad frame this agency thing of Oz, right? So pour yourself a glass of eggnog. You know, if you want to step away from the relaxing and get into business mode a little bit, I think this is a great way to do it. Without further ado, please give it up for Brent Weaver. Brent, thanks for coming on the show. Dan, good to be here, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I've, I've known about your work for a while and it's great to finally have you on. It's probably a good time for it just based on this crazy year we've had and how much things have changed. I enjoyed reading your work because I think we, we agree on most things, especially on the topic of niching and specialization, which is why I think this is going to be kind of like a devil's advocate show where I, I end up like representing that agency that wants to stay kind of stuck in their old ways. But before we get to all that, if you can go through your journey a little bit, starting the agency, founding you gurus and so on. I started my agency in high school detention. I was not personally in detention. I was walking through. That's at least the position I'm maintaining. My uh, business partner was serving some lunch detention and uh, I had heard through some friends that he was making money on the internet. This is 1999 for context. And uh, I had some servers that I needed to pay for. And my job at the local fabric store at uh, $6.25 an hour wasn't really cutting mustard for me. So I um, I started, I was building websites at the time. I was running a gaming website for PC games. I, mean, I don't even know what it was. I mean, it was, we wrote about games at the time. And, and I think it was just kind of fun to build a website and then keep rebuilding it. I needed to make money to pay for the servers. And so first website we did was a, a candy store in Michigan for 500 bucks. It's a one page e-commerce site. A uh, lady named Shurneys, and she stayed a client of ours, I think, until 2009. So that business started very humble beginnings. And when we sold it in 2012, we had 14 team members, about 300 clients in our active management, clients like Adobe, Dish Network, Anheuser-Busch, InBev, and a bunch more, right? And we had, uh, I think, done a pretty good job. And a couple of years before we sold, we started a, 
uh, training and education site for a, an Adobe product called Business Catalyst. And we were doing a lot of business training. I was teaching people about my sales process and project management and marketing. And that kind of took off. And we decided that we wanted to put more of our effort into that. So we sold the agency and started YouGurus in 2012 and have been coaching digital agencies on how to grow their business since. That's That's really great. How easy or hard do you think it would have been to have agency success if you were starting now, right? Because you were starting 1999, websites were a new thing, you kind of found this niche. I don't want to say it was luck, but you you found the right area to kind of like hit your wagon to. What does that look like now if you were starting things fresh? Yeah. I mean, look, in 1999, finding clients and connecting with people that needed this type of stuff was insanely difficult. One of our biggest clients ever at the time, right, when I was like, uh, when I was 18, 19 years old, was this golf products company that we eventually, we kind of became a partner in and we even created our own golf e-commerce site, a little niche thing. We didn't stay in that space for very long. But it, but I, I met that guy through a connection in high school, a classmate of mine in computer science, uh, worked at CompUSA, for those that remember. Yeah. CompUSA, a computer parts store, right? A big, like a, a Best Buy of computers. Yeah. You know, imagine like your biggest client comes from like the computer store. You know, I mean, today you've got all these online ad platforms. You can spin up Facebook ads for a dollar. I mean, there's just, there's so many more ways to connect with people. And I think too, there's so many more ways to learn about what we do. I used to have to ride my bike or, you know, drive my car right once I turned 16 up to Barnes and Noble and I'd buy these, you know, these computer programming books you know, I would buy like one a month and there were these giant thick Bibles, right? Dictionaries of HTML or Perl or CGI. And it was painful. It was like really painful. It was, it was lonely, you know, to find other people that were into like web design and internet stuff was like, it was really lonely. You know, I think the, one of the guys that I had a server with was some dude in, in, uh, in Oklahoma and he had like servers in his basement and I remember I'd sometimes call him because my server would be down and I'd literally be like interrupting him for dinner. Like he would, I could tell he was eating dinner in the background and he'd be like, hold on. I you know, it was just so it was, it was a different internet back then. Right. And so I think that nowadays there's a lot more people getting into this stuff, but at the same time, there's like billions of people connected to the internet. You know, back in 99, there was like 200 million. It's a different, totally different ball game now, but I think it's, it's a lot more exciting. Um, but there's also a lot more competition. You know, like a lot of people can build websites super fast and easy, but then also, you know, there's some, you know, people are getting paid for a lot more diverse services when it comes to web now. Yeah, that, that's really funny. It just and your story kind of brought back a bunch of memories and I'm 34 now, so I was probably like 10 or 12 in the 90s. And I remember if I was a kid today, I would just be able to like log on, you know, basically play any game immediately, no training necessary. But back then I remember my dad had to like, log into MS DOS in order for me to play Doom or Doom 2, which I should had no business playing at that age. But <laughs> did it anyway. Parents didn't know, right? Parents didn't know. They're yeah. like, oh, they're playing computer games like Pac-Man. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but it's, yeah, and then going to the store too, going to the computer store to buy games. So so that, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of like moving things um, to the present day with you gurus. One topic you write about a lot is, is specialization and kind of the importance of niching. Has that changed at all this year? Like, I've, what do you say to that agency that's like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't niche because this XYZ restaurants got hit so hard. I'm glad I stayed a generalist. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, a lot of people that were niched in restaurants made a lot of money in the pandemic because, I mean, restaurants were one of those markets that kind of went up 
the creek without a paddle. And the people that helped restaurants navigate that, whether it was online ordering, takeout, delivery, et cetera. Uh, we had a guy, Brett uh, Linkletter, who runs Misfit Media. He keynoted one of the days of our, our intensive last year in December. And I specifically had him on because I was like, hey, you're all in on restaurants. How'd it go? And they got decimated for like two months. It was bad. But they ended up finishing the year like with 250% growth year over year from 2019 because they completely repositioned their offers. They ended up becoming like they 3X their profitability. They streamlined. They got really crazy about chat, like direct sale discount kind of coupon type offers. Um, they got really crazy about some specific like paid ad funnels into a chat type of rep. I mean, they went like all in on we're going to build a lab and we're going to figure out how to get restaurants back into business, you know, and they ended up like, yeah, it was a really difficult few months, but they ended up pushing their business forward. They founded a SaaS. So they now have their own software as a service for restaurants. I always come back to, you know, imagine we're not in a pandemic, right? It's kind of business as usual. So those two or three months where everything got turned upside down and like the world became a snow globe, you know, let's put that aside. You know, if you're sitting there and you're trying to compete for a restaurant group's business and there's they have like maybe 15 locations on one side of the table. There's the generic agency that has a very diverse set of clients. And on the other side of the table is the agency who lives and breathes restaurant world and has, you know, intellectual property, has SaaS, has proven processes and systems, has account managers, client success managers, you know, marketing specialists that are 100% dedicated to restaurants. I don't know. Maybe the generalist agency every once in a while will win the deal. But in six months when that restaurant's upset that they're not getting any results, they're going to come back to the company that knows how to get results for, for those clients. Now, there's a lot of niches out there that don't have highly specialized firms. There's a lot of businesses out there that are in niches that still like to work with agencies and people that they know, like, and trust through personal relationships or referrals. So it's kind of like the... Uh, the pizza market, right? Like there's Pizza Hut, there's Domino's, and there's like all those local kind of players. Like I don't think that generalist agencies are ever going to go away. I think that there's just a competitive advantage to being specialized and being niched. And the fun part is, is if you've gone through the niching journey once, it gets a lot easier the second and third and fourth and fifth time. Like I'm on my 13th niche. And so for me, I feel like I have a playbook for, for niching. If my niche did explode or implode tomorrow, uh, I feel like I kind of know what to do to spin up faster, better, stronger in the next niche. And generalist agencies don't have that playbook. They're still kind of going, hey, we love saying that we can work with anybody for everything. And and that's cool. I've seen seen 10, $20 million a year agencies um, use that model. And I always tell people it works until it doesn't. And you don't have proven marketing channels. When you don't have IP, you know, it's, it's great until maybe one day when it's not great, when you don't know where your next lead's coming from. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. 
In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Right. And then sometimes it not working can be just like a slow death, <laughs> death by a million cuts as opposed to just like one bad thing that happens, which I think is the the, the less ideal scenario. So niching and specialization has kind of become, it's, it's a drumbeat we've been playing for a while. And I think more and more people are getting on board with it. I think what we tend to see a lot is just lots of hand wringing. You know, we see lots of agencies that are like, well, I like to do work here. This, this other area looks like it's growing. It, it reminds me of kind of like day trading, like what area is hot right now and, and so on. So I'd love to hear like, what are your thoughts on, on a good framework for, for actually figuring out, Hey, we have this giant grab bag of industries we've worked with. How do we actually figure out what to commit ourselves to over the course of the next X years? Well, the, the first thing that I always suggest people to, to identify is, is there already a market or lowest common denominator that you serve that you're just not really that aware of? You know, so I've had people, for instance, that are, you know, they're, they're trying to vertical themselves when really they work within a really awesome horizontal and they don't necessarily need to verticalize themselves, at least right now. Right. And, and so think about that very broadly. Like if, you, you know, sometimes agencies are like, hey, we are e-commerce specialists. Well, that's not really a very good horizontal even. Right. But then you ask them, well, what, what system do you use? And they say, well, you know, 80 percent of our stuff is WooCommerce and we do a little bit of Shopify. Right. And so it's like, well, could we just cross that? that chasm of going from, Hey, we're an e-commerce shop that specializes in a few different tools to like, we're a WooCommerce shop. And then could you take that even further? Like we're a WooCommerce business that helps, you know, membership companies or whatever, right. Grow and scale their business, right. Or solve complex membership portal issues. Cause like if you, if you're a business that has a membership portal, and you run it on WooCommerce, like you got all sorts of complicated problems, right? Of scaling that platform. And there's there's always going to be enough work, right? For that type of person, right? So that business might not need to go out there and become just work with educators or coaches or doctors or dentists or whatever, right? They might be sitting on a horizontal already. And so one of the things that I look at is, you know, hey, are you already serving a niche? You just don't know how to talk about it yet. Maybe there's some consistent like conferences that you're already going to. Maybe there's some some groups of people that you're already involved with and presenting and sharing on a regular basis. So I think the first step to niching, or if you're not niched, is just become aware of like who are your clients right now and are there verticals, are there horizontals, and then also take that a level up of look at your marketing channels. Right. We know that you're going to get clients through referrals from existing clientele. And then sometimes people use this phrase of word of mouth. And so I always ask them, well, what does word of mouth mean? You know, do you have a few people that are referring you a lot? Are those people part of an industry? Are they part of a market? So just really looking at what your client base currently is and where those clients come from could help you identify like, are you already 95% of the way to niching? You just haven't, like, everybody else knows who your customer is, but maybe you're just the last one to be like, oh, yeah, this is who we are. Uh, and so one of the things that we did when we went through this process is we just, I printed out all of our customers from uh, FreshBooks at the time. And I just went through at a coffee shop, client by client, 
And, you know, I put like their industry, I put, you know, where we got them. And I tried to be really specific. Like we got this client through referral, but who actually referred them and in what way, right? Why did they refer them? Was I talking with them often? Did I see them again at a conference, right? So I really tried to deconstruct like what our business was today because it was, it was a, a successful business in its own way. Um, we just didn't have a very clear market strategy. Now, beyond that, if you're looking at your clients, I mean, the three things that I tell people to look for is, you know, does your market make money? Do they spend money? Do they have money, right? So just think about that money bucket a little bit. Are they spending money on your services already? I had the uh, the false belief that I'm going to go out there and find people that don't have websites and sell them websites. And, and I always tell people, like, it's really hard to sell religion to non-believers, right? Like, because it's just a big jump. And I think that a lot of people think, oh, if a business isn't advertising, then they, you know, they could be a great advertising client. And the reality is the people that already have websites that are already investing heavily in social media, that are already investing in ads, Google ads, Facebook ads, et cetera, those are way more ideal clients because they're already, they already believe in the thing you do, right? You just need to come to them and say that you're better, different, faster, stronger than the agency that's currently doing their thing, which usually but if a company isn't unhappy with their agency today, just wait six months, right? And then they'll be unhappy with their agency because that's just how this world works, right? So money is a big thing. Interest, do you have an interest in what your what that market is all about? And it doesn't have to be a passion. You don't have to wake up in the morning and be like, I love dentistry, right? But you got to at least have an interest there. And you can develop that passion over time because it's not about, it's not a passion for what they do that you need to really build. It's a passion for, for what you do with and for those people and the results it creates for them. And results is the third thing and making sure that you can get this type of client results. And when you get somebody results, let's say at Facebook ads, if they're a dental, if they're a dentist office, if you've got even the slightest interest in dentistry or, or the practice of a business, right? That they're a local practice that they help local people and you're able to get them insane results is that what's going to happen is you're going to, you're going to develop a passion, not for dentistry, but for getting new patients into a business, right? That that's going to be fun. You're going to be like, you're going to get calls from the dentist being like, oh my gosh, right? Turn it down. We're, we're blowing up, right? And I always use dentists in common niche examples, but there's so many niches out there. So money, interest, and results are kind of my three big things to look at. And after that, if you still can't decide, I'd flip a coin. That, that makes a lot of sense. And ultimately, it sounds like the risk of doing nothing is going to far outweigh the risk of choosing something and then having it go wrong and correcting course. If you don't mind, can you talk about total addressable market or TAM a little bit? I see lots of people with agencies that might have a niche like a restaurant or a dentist, and there's like thousands and thousands of these companies. And I'm always reminded of that Napoleon quote, you know, quantity takes on a quality all of its own versus let's say you're, I don't know, focused on large cybersecurity companies or something like that. Completely different ballgame. So I love your, your thoughts on how to address those, those different situations. If you're a, a digital marketing agency and you want to have a million dollar your business, you need 10 clients that are going to spend 8,400 bucks a month with you. 10. If they spend four grand, you need 20, give or take. And so, you know, I think total addressable market, it's an important part of the conversation to understand, I mean, you know, I mean, should you make a good decision in that kind of space? But it's really easy for an agency because of the nature of agency businesses that it's basically a, 
It's staff augmentation, right? People hire agencies because they don't have the expertise in-house or the agency has unique you know, processes and, and whatever, right? But most agencies exist because the, the business doesn't have an internal Facebook team, right? Or they don't have an internal, they don't have enough budgets to hire like five full-time people to manage their website, right? They can buy a little fraction of a web agency and they get like a web designer, a web developer, a, a digital marketer, an SEO person, and they only have to pay like three grand a month. I think that most agencies to be insanely successful don't need a ton of clients. And honestly, I'd, I'd encourage them to probably think hard about whether they would ever want a ton of clients. I think it's Blair Enns or maybe David Baker that says, you know, you should build your business based on an idea that you're going to be insanely successful with 20 clients, you know? And so if you're somebody who has more of a practice, maybe you've got, you know, 20 clients and they're all paying you, you know, $2,000 a month. You know, if you have a team of people that you're, giving people access to one of my clients. Um, she's kind of an outsourced fractional CMO. And so, you know, she, it's, she's got her services and then she's got like seven or eight people that kind of work on her bench. She doesn't need like 300 clients. It would actually make her life miserable if she did. And so I think there's always a context of, you know, do you need to go into a market that like restaurants that has hundreds of thousands of businesses? I mean, you, you know, you're never going to get any of them or all of them. You're not even going to get 1% of them. Now, there are certain types of entrepreneurs that build really scalable businesses and are amazing at customer acquisition and systems, and the entrepreneur has no interest in personally working with every client. But if you want to work with every client, if you want to be a part of their ecosystem, if you're going to personally sell them, if you're going to personally do delivery on them, like you can maybe have like 20 clients, maybe 30, right? So I think what's more important is, you know, is this a market that you can build authority in? You know, can you build awareness? And if, if there are no, if there's no opportunities for one to many awareness opportunities, then that to me is like kind of a deal breaker. Uh, you know, we're hanging out on this podcast, by the way, thanks Dan for having me on. Right. Uh, you know, we're hanging out on this podcast, right. You've gone and you've done a lot of hard work to build up an audience of listeners. Right. And I get to pop on here for an hour. Like I was taking a walk with my, my wife right before I got on here. And I get to pop on for an hour and then you, you're going to go do a whole lot of hard work and you're going to put my message out to a bunch of, a bunch of cool people. If your market doesn't have stuff like that, blogs, podcasts, if you go into Facebook and you start typing in <laughs> conscious entrepreneurs that are seeking growth and the interest box, right, doesn't pull up anything, right? It probably means that your market isn't very well, you know, defined. It doesn't it doesn't really exist and you need to come up with other ways to think about it. So market infrastructure to me is like is super important, right? If your market doesn't have associations, if it doesn't have SaaS providers that are serving the market, if it doesn't have uh, events and conferences and meetups and influencers and, and all these great people like yourself, then you know that to me is a really, really big red flag. I don't really care how big the market is. As long as there's ways for me to get in front of the right people, You know, I can have a successful agency with 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 clients, right? But if you're talking about, I mean, we built up a roster of 300 clients over 14 years, that took a really long time. There are great agencies that I think have, you know, hundreds of clients, but I think most, most agencies can be successful with 10 or 30 clients a year. Makes a lot of sense. And, and I think from there, you know, most people, let's say people are getting on board with this idea of specialization and they're like, okay, I know where I want to focus my energy, but start marketing, you know, getting in front of them and what that sort of thing. I think a common question we hear another source of hand wringing is okay, what, what the heck do we sell? We do websites, we do marketing, we do all these different things. How do we figure out how to actually position this and make sure that you know we're we're setting ourselves up to be that 
long-term provider as opposed to, Hey, we need a new website once every five years and we'll plug you in, you know, every so often. So, I mean, I think one of the things that makes specialized companies special, uh, not to echo that they start to kind of go into getting their, their master's degree and their, then their PhD into their market. And I think what most people realize very quickly is that no dentist wants a website. They want new patients. No nonprofit wants a website. They want more volunteers and donors. You know, a restaurant does not want a social media page. They want more diners. They want more reservations. They want more catering deals. They want more to-go orders, right? And so I think that once you, once you start to learn the language and the desires and the goals and the outcomes of a market, then your task should not be, how many services can we sell to this market? The task should be how few services can we leverage in order to get a measurable and desirable outcome for our client. You know, and, and you might start kind of broad, right? Because you don't know, right? You might be going into a market and go, oh man, we got to do websites and ads and this and this and this because our clients are going to ask us for all this stuff and we need to be prepared to say yes to everything, right? And I think that's how a lot of this starts. But over time, you're going to switch from the client asking for you to do stuff to you telling and prescribing because you're the, you're the traffic expert. And you can say to a client, look, let's forget about, you know, Foursquare, right? It's gone. Uh, you know, let's forget about this, you know, Pinterest or whatever, right? We're going to drive insane amount of reservations through, you know, Facebook traffic to a chat or whatever, right? Whatever your like thing is. And so I think once you do become specialized and it's not going to happen at first, there's kind of this idea of like channel excellence and it kind of follows. Have you ever like learned a new skill or a new habit, right? Like at first, you know, you kind of think it's going to be this like linear journey. Like James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits has this great, like this linear journey of what you think is going to happen. What really happens is this is kind of like you kind of start on this, like, it's almost like a, a bow. You curve down and everything, like nothing works for you. And I think it's in that period of time where you're kind of throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall. And so you're kind of going, hey, let's offer a lot of services because you don't know what works. But as you start learning what works for a specific type of customer in a specific market or a specific outcome, then you need to be ready and willing to call those services and be really cutthroat about it. Right. If you're if you're going in to work with restaurants and let's say after, you know, after six months, you realize like, yeah, we, we're selling we're selling branding and custom websites to these clients. And it's really putting a drag on how long it takes them to get results. Like we're spending eight or nine months talking about visual design and blah, blah, blah. When really this company, you know, they need like butts and seats. Right. And so you need to be willing at some point to say, you know, to prioritize the client's what they want, right? What the market wants over maybe what you you personally find satisfaction in. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenge areas for people because there's people that are just like, I'm a brander. They're like, I'm a social media marketer, whatever they are, right? Today, they get into their market, they realize that the market wants something else. And instead of like meeting that need, they fight it and they have resistance to it. And I think that causes a lot of problems for people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to dig into that a little bit more, Robert Rose has this concept that he talks a lot about called the smile graph, right? Where you have like a value chain over time. And then there's on the top left of the value chain, there's strategy. And then you go down to this like trap of commoditization where there might be the people that just are generalists or build websites or do this or that. And then you come out the other end and there's the, the measurement people, the one who kind of tie back to strategy again. I've sort of seen this in my travels too. It's not just conceptual where there'll be an agency that 
whatever they, they do social media posts or they build websites and then they want to take over a bigger part of the, the strategy in order to get, you know, better results for their clients. And then they kind of get friend zoned to sort of like, aren't you the guys that build, build websites for us? I don't think so. You know, so <laughs> I'd to hear like, do you agree with that dynamic? And if so, how do you deal with that? If you present yourself in the friend zone, it can be hard to reshape perceptions later. And we fell into this, right? We sold people websites. And then at some point we were like, hey, we have all these people we've done great things for and gotten them great results. You know, we should go back to them and sell them other stuff. You know, and, and if you look at like, like what the process of branding is, right? It's like there's, an, there's a perception of your company in the marketplace. And, you know, and, and then you have like your perception. And a lot of times there's a big gap between like what people perceive you as and what you perceive yourself as, right? So if, if there's a big gap here, right, then you need to go through a branding process to change the perception of what people have about you. And, and you need to do things, right? You need to communicate differently. Like for instance, when, when we showed up and we sold somebody a website and then a year later we came back to them and said, hey, we want to do SEO for you. We want to do social media for you. They were kind of like, but you guys are the website guys. It's like, oh man, that hurts, right? We got friend zone, right? What we had to start saying is, okay, well, we're not going to sell people what, you know, SEO and social and digital ads right up front, but we need to start telling people about the why behind our business. And our tagline went from, we make great websites to, you know, we help you get more leads and customers using your website, you know, or, or a value proposition, right? And so every time I'm talking to somebody, from the very first time I meet them, I'm setting a perception of, hey, let me tell you a little about why our company exists, right? When I started this company, it was because I loved building websites. But then I realized that every customer coming to me really wanted something else. They didn't want a website. A website was just a means to get them there. And in our discovery process, we're going to get really clear on what you want. And in that process, we're going to identify what we're going to build for you. And a lot of it might start with a website. We view the website as kind of like the hub, right? That's the thing that you own. Nobody can take it away from you. It's not Facebook, right? We're going to focus on building the hub into a high converting website. Now, once we have that hub, then we're going to focus on traffic and we're going to drive more qualified people to your door, right? And so we can either engage in one big contract and do this for the next couple of years. We can do this in phases, right? We can do a project and then a retainer, right? We've got different ways depending on how your business wants to attack this problem, right? But I'm setting that expectation from the very first meeting that I have with them. So while I might not be doing an SEO contract with them right away, I'm getting them excited, right? I'm planting a seed. I'm, I'm framing ourselves in a way. Now, if you haven't done that, then you need to engage in some kind of a, of a rebrand, right? Now, it doesn't mean changing your logo. It means changing the perception of what people think of you. And it might be something as simple as sending an email to your entire client list saying, hey, we're putting a stake in the ground. We're no longer agency ABC that builds websites. We're agency ABC that builds amazing online businesses. And we view the website as just one component of that. And you're going to hear from us over the next six to 12 months about how we're changing the game for our clients around search and traffic and whatever, right? So you've got to have some kind of process to get out of the friend zone, right? And you've got to also be willing to kind of probably lose some clients over it, right? The people that are not willing to come with you on this journey. I know a lot of agencies that are like, oh no, we'll just keep them. We'll just keep them. We'll keep them as legacy clients. But there's something about that, right? Like we we kind of accept what we're what we're willing to tolerate. And if we if we don't want to be in the friend zone, we want to be doing something different with our clients. And you know, you got to cross that bridge, right? But it's hard to compartmentalize because your team's going to see it, your clients are going to see it. Those clients that you're currently working with in a legacy fashion, they're going to refer more people like them to you, right? Like versus getting more and more people that are are who are ideal clients for you. So I definitely yeah. recommend not getting stuck in the. Uh, I love that the the friend zone. 
I do think that there are some companies that get really, and this is a new trend that I've seen in this kind of done with you or strategic advisory capacity where they want to just do strategy. And I've really had a hard time seeing agencies that make this work great for their clients. I think maybe up at the Fortune 500 level, there are strategic consultants, right? But I think a lot of small business owners feel like they're getting dropped off. Uh, they're getting dropped off on the curb because somebody comes in and says, oh, well, we just do strategy. We don't actually do any of the production work, right? And so they come up with this fantastical plan that they've never actually implemented for anybody. And they're not practitioners, right? They're just thinkers. And I think that there's something to be said about people that are confident in their strategy work, but they're also building a successful production team to get things done for clients. Because I think that clients ultimately, most of them, you know, they, they don't need more ideas, right? They need, they need able-bodied hands to get stuff done quickly, effectively, and to some level of quality. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like that Derek Savers quote, like if it was if information was the answer, we'd all be millionaires with great abs or whatever, right? So <laughs> uh, it's that, that makes sense. And, and one thing you touched on earlier that kind of ties back to this is, is a, a big trend that I think we're all seeing, which is agencies kind of being the launch pads for other things, right? Whether it's like, oh, okay, we're going to market to restaurants and now we're this publishing platform and maybe we start an online, you know, a podcast and we're getting sponsors on the podcast. We're building a SaaS product. Um, and then now we're becoming more of a software business and all this, this sort of morphing. And then you have publishers like New York Times now has an agency and they're like a full on AOR, basically, I think more or less. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, it seems like a pretty cool model that I have a lot of a lot of interest in. The idea of using the service business as kind of like a launch pad for the stuff that could get you that 20, 30x valuation. Or I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this kind of like melding of things. <laughs> I mean, we started an agency. After 13 years, we sold the business and we had incubated this information product training company kind of inside of it accidentally, right? With no grand vision, we just were, were doing cool stuff and we were having fun with it. But at some point we, we had to, we were riding two horses at the same time. We had two very different businesses, right? And then we could try to compartmentalize those things as like, you know, this, that we have this business unit with this team and then we have, but honestly, like it was a very different enough market product service, like our daily standups started becoming like really weird, right? We had like our agency team and we had like our, our BC gurus team because the BC gurus team never really had to work under these crazy like client demands, right? I mean, their biggest client was like $150 a month on the agency side. The biggest client was like 15 grand a month or 20 grand a month just different expectations, right? Some people were expected to come in and work on Thanksgiving morning because somebody had a Black Friday launch and the other team was like working, you know, four day weeks. I think it, it can be a good thing, but my hunch, Dan, is that the, the road of agencies moonlighting other projects is way more littered with massive failures than successes is is my hunch. I don't have any empirical evidence to back that up. Um, but I think that in my conversations with people that have tried to launch their own products, whether it's their own content management system, their own, you know, SaaS platform just for agencies, right? Or whatever, right? There's there's a lot of of software that ended up in dead ends. There's a lot of courses that have never been bought or or not at any meaningful level. And I think that while there could be some upside, and I definitely have benefited from that, I think we we benefited from a lot of luck of timing and a lot of really fortunate kind of things. But I also think that if you're going to moonlight a project, whether it's a, a, a SaaS or whether it's um, 
or whether it's some other kind of product, uh, you should probably think hard about that because when you're doing one thing, you're not doing another. And we saw it in our agency. When I was working on BC Guru's strategic partnerships, when I was trying to build stuff with Adobe, right, I was not focused on you know, local clients. This, it was like this teeter totter of revenue, right? Like I'd go, like, it was like, I'd go over to one and kind of work it up and then I'd go over to the other and work it up. Right. It was just, it was just like when I was doing one thing, I was not doing the other. Right. And you can try to convince yourself, Oh no, I'll do it. Like I'll work weekends. I'll work mornings. I'll work. And that's great. Like I tell people like I can do anything for six weeks, but after six weeks, man, when it, when it goes from like, Hey, we're running like a 400 meter, like, you know, or a 800 meter race to like, we're running a marathon now. Those things, those habits, right? Working weekends, those turn into burnout. They turn into divorces. They turn into whatever. And so I would think long and hard about diversifying out to other types of business models because it's going to take up headspace. It's going to be what you think about in the shower. It's going to, it's going to pull you away from your core business. And I think that more often than not, those things lead in failures, both for the product, but also for the agency. Like I've watched agencies like multi-million dollar agencies evaporate. You know, I've got two close friends that run, ran multiple seven-figure agencies that are both no longer today. They're not, they don't exist. And in both cases, there was a clear moment where they started to launch other business models, whether it was a SaaS or a, you know, a different type of product, right? And they tried to split their team in half or whatever. And then like two years later, they're gone. There's cautionary tales there, and, and you should think like long and hard about that. Uh, and the last thing I'll say on this, Dan, because this is obviously a topic I've lived through for the last 20 years, is... If you're going to do it, if you commit and you're like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to moonlight, I'm going to do another thing, right? At some point, you're going to need to make a decision of who's going to drive both of these things. And the sooner that you can, if, if something is gaining traction and, and success, I'm actually recently a partner, uh, a passive partner in a business called Unlimited WP, the CEO and founder of that company, Ronick, you know, I kind of forced him to make a decision. He had a few different projects going on, you know, and he's like, ah, I can do all of these. And I was like, dude. We're either going to scale this thing like big time or we're going to kind of do like this mediocre thing, right? You can't be everywhere, all places, right? Like maybe one day when you, when you have a big exit, you'll have the resources, but we need, we need focus, right? And so he went and got a driver, somebody who would just take over and drive his other initiatives where he could completely get his, you know, wash his hands of those things. And so he could focus on his main thing, right? So I think at some point you just need to decide, you know, what's your main thing and anything that's not your main thing. Is there a team member? Is there a strategic partner? Is there somebody else that can take this over and take full accountability of the success or failure of it? And I think that if you do that soon enough, hopefully it can protect you from, you know, being one of those cautionary tales. That's really helpful. Makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good, a good warning for people. And if you don't want to be asking, what, why did you gurus make the, the jump for you as opposed to sticking with the agency or staying the path with, with the service model there? It, it is a good question because it's kind of a personal, a little bit personal, but we, we started BC Gurus and it was, it was a passion project after about, you know, six months to a year, right. We started getting these like, thank you notes, you know, and we'd gotten like, thank you notes before from clients, you know, like you would get like a thank you note from like dish network, right. It'd be like, thanks for being great. It was like printed, you know, like, like it was like, it was signed by a printer, like dish network team. Right. And not, nothing about that, right. They paid us lots and lots of money. I'm very thankful of that. But like, you know, it was like the traditional like Christmas card type of stuff. And so with our training and coaching business, we started getting these like letters in six page handwritten letters about somebody's personal story and about how their life was fundamentally changed. 
and how them discovering a random blog post went, took them down this rabbit hole of learning how to actually run their business. Cause I think a lot of us within the web space, you know, we got interested in like building websites or coding or whatever, right? We didn't go to business school. We didn't get a, a certificate of business. We didn't ever learn about marketing or sales or whatever. And that was my story. And, and so I, we started getting these thank you letters in, we created this wall. We called it the thank you wall at our office. And it was floor to ceiling, maybe about eight or nine feet wide. And it was just, like was super ghetto, like thumbtacked, like right into the wall. Like every time we'd get one of these, we just like thumbtack in the wall. And at first it was like this little section of the wall. And then it was like the whole wall. And then I told my office manager, hey, can we get like a, a bulletin board for this? And then we filled up the bulletin board and we started going outside the bulletin board. And so at some point I like looked at that and I'm like, man, this lights me up. Like, I just, I want more of this and I don't know where this is going to lead, but like if I had to choose between, you know, two companies, right, both of them were making pretty good money at the time and, you know, but I, I needed to focus on one. I said, you know, one of them is like, we're doing really cool stuff. We're building great things for clients, necessary things. But on the other one, we're seeing very real evidence that we're having like direct and measurable impact on individual people. And so we just looked at that and... I took a couple of weeks off for my honeymoon and uh, had the first break in a decade from my business. And I thought about it and I said, you know, something needs to change. And I came back from my honeymoon, had a meeting with my partner and said, I, I think we should go do this other thing. Do you want to come with me or do you want to you know, keep doing this? And he was like, I want to come with. So we put the balls in motion to make that happen. Yeah, that's really great. And I love that story because it's, it's super tangible. You can, you can Im- imagine that. And it's a really great, uh, a really great signal. I think that you're heading in the right direction there. I know that you, I think about a year ago, published uh, Get Rich in the Deep End, if I have that right. Yep. I'm about halfway through my first business book in five years. So I want to selfishly pick your brain about it. Uh, why'd you decide to write a book now <laughs> over or a year ago, I guess, at this point? Yeah. So the book started, so we published in 2020. I think the book started in some shape or form probably in 2017. I started the writing process and I, I kind of wrote uh, I wrote the book and then I, I met with a friend of mine, Aaron Rickson, who ended up being the co-author with me. And I said, hey, here's this thing I have. And he was like, hey, it's awesome. It's great. We have something here, but I need you to start over, right? It was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and so we, um, you know, I think writing a book, uh, it can be a simple process. I think some people use like, you know, ghostwriters and this or that. I think I, I put a lot of work into it. Not to, not to say that like my, that's better than other ways. I think it just meant that the process took a long time. For me, I wanted to share what the journey of specialization could look like. Uh, we created a character named Heather. Heather's kind of an amalgamation of my own story and several of my client stories. We kind of, you know, we, we kind of put together to create a narrative to show the ups and downs of what it, what you go through when you go through this process. Because a lot, there's a lot of articles, there's a lot of books about niching and specialization, and so. Well, while we wanted to provide the tactical information in the book, we also wanted to cover like the real human aspect of it, because I think as we've talked about today, like niching and specialization, it, it, it's hard. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's going to be a lot of rejection. And I think that people are like, oh, yeah, just go contact like publishers or, hey, go pitch yourself to podcast, right? And for a lot of people, that's a very scary proposition. We decided to kind of cover this, you know, cover this this create this narrative of Heather going through the process. And I mean, that's really when I got, I got lit up about the book was when Aaron and I kind of were like, I had written some little snippet, like little story, little, little shorts in the book about, 
some characters. And then, you know, he came back and was like, Hey, I think this is something we could create a whole, like this could be the book. And I think at that point, like it really just lit up for me and we wanted to create something that was both very tangible of like, here are the things that you should probably think about when you're going into a market, but also here's what that process is going to look like. And I had also, I've been very, you know, uh, influenced by like, uh, E-Myth, uh, Gino's book. Well, it's the other oh, one. The other one. Yeah, so I'm on it. There's traction. And then there's the book that like kind of goes through a story of people implementing traction. And yeah. that's the one that I read first. Cause traction, yeah. when you read it first, it's like, Oh my God, like I gotta go do yeah. all this. Right. Yeah, but when right. I read the other book, uh, which I don't know why it's, I'm blanking on it, but, uh, I read that one first and it was, it was like, it really made it, made it real for me. You know, if I can help people to find their market and I told you earlier, I'm on, I'm on my 13th niche. It's a process, right? And so I think if I could provide my experience and what we've done with our hundreds of clients with it, with you gurus, right? If we could take that and turn it into a blueprint and get people started, then you know that was kind of my mission with the book. Yeah, and, and I think it's a really important topic because there, there's this great quote that I love, and it's it's based, I forgot who it's from, but it's essentially like reality has a surprising amount of detail, which sounds like <laughs> which sounds like a very simple line, but it's it's the idea that the amount of detail is continuously surprising, right? So the idea of being a generalist, especially as there's more and more information and, and, and more and more uh, to the world, it just makes less and less sense, right? So I think it's a really important topic and uh, completely off topic, non sequitur. But one thing you said reminded me of that Mitch Hedberg joke with your co-writer where he's like, I like it, but I think you want to go, you should, you should restart it. Where it's like Hedberg is, and he says, I know, I'll just make a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, dude, I and I, I think my, I mean, if, if to kind of go meta on the book, if if you were to write a book or start writing a book, my advice, being on the backside of it, is to you know bite the bullet, and if you're really serious about it, involve smart people that have done a lot of stuff with books early in your process. And I mean, I think there's something to be said about like doing the work and like putting enough, like enough energy into it to realize it's going to be a real thing. But I also think that, you know, we moved dirt twice, so to speak, a few times in the process because I, I didn't have, you know, Aaron involved early enough. Uh, we ultimately hired a company to help us take the book to market. Uh, interestingly enough that, uh, you know, while the, the manuscript didn't change in a material way, there was some small tweaks and polish that they brought to the table. They ended up changing the title, which was a really emotional thing. Uh, and so I think there's things like that, that we just involve people like late in the game. And, and if we would have involved them earlier, uh, it could have cut down the work, the rework substantially. And so I think if you are interested in writing a book, you know, I think if you reach out to people that are in that space, um, I'd highly encourage you to do it. And honestly, and, and, and here's what will probably happen. You'll do that and you'll go talk to them and they're going to tell you how much they cost. And you'll probably vomit a little bit in your mouth. And the reality is you're probably going to have to pay it anyways. So you might as well pay it earlier in your process and get their help all along the way versus what I did was we were pretty much, you know, we were at the finish line and then we really started engaging, you know, some people at that level. And so I think that if you get help sooner, it can be a, a, a blessing for you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, a half, in a half hour, I'm doing a workshop on my book just to kind of like put it out there in public before it's, it's ready and get feedback on it and stuff. I do the poor man's version of what you describe, which is basically just me annoying my very high-level copywriter friends until they give me feedback <laughs> on it. So that, that's another just one more, just one yeah. more read, right? Just read it one more time, right? I, yeah, I, I'll buy um, you a sandwich. I read uh, Ryan Holiday when he was writing. Uh, I don't know if it was conspiracy. 
I, th- I think it might have been conspiracy. He, I think he has this practice now, but he every time he prints his book out while he's in the rewriting process and he finishes, you know, he finishes marking it up and he finishes kind of going through that version of it, he shreds it. And then he uses it in his his compost bin, and he walks it into his compost or something. Uh, so he literally like gets to like squish it into like the muddy dirt with his like bare feet. Uh, and so I think if that if that gives you a visual of how writers feel about that process, it is a very painful, challenging thing. So good luck to you on that. Yeah, it's a good thing he's a stoic. That probably helps helps with all that. <laughs> so Brent, Brent, this was so much fun. I really appreciate it, Matt. How can people follow what you're up to? Get in touch, all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can check out our website, yougurus.com. That's U-G-U-R-U-S.com. Or if you're listening to this podcast and you made it this far, drop me an email, brent at yougurus.com. And I'll hook you up with, uh, we've got this kind of field guide for the book, Get Rich in the Deep End. Um, so obviously you can check that out on Amazon. But if you drop me an email and just say, hey, we'd love to get the field guide, then I'll, I'll shoot you some additional resources. And right now the book is like three bucks on Amazon Kindle. So there's really no reason not to get it. Yeah, definitely recommend it. We'll get it all linked up. And Brent, thanks again, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode was sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.